All right. <clears throat> so a few weeks ago, actually several weeks ago, um, Chris and I went on a date, and we were talking about um, what Lent might look for us might look like for us this year. Um, and he decided that I was going to preach today, um, which normally makes me really really nervous. But this time I was actually kind of excited um, because, to Chris's dismay, I love the prophets. And so over the last several years of reading through the Bible, um, I kind of like get really intense when I get to the prophetic books of the Bible. And so he kind of has to like prepare himself for what is coming when he knows I'm going to be reading the books of the prophets. Anyway, so for several years now, I have jotted down notes every single time I read through the Bible and I have a ridiculous pile of them. And so this was the reason that Chris thought, I should preach this morning. But earlier this week, I sat down and I got overwhelmed at the amount of notes that I had and the fact that there was a whole lot that I wanted to say. And that's not something that I usually struggle with. Um, In fact, in my world, if I can get someone else to speak for me, usually Chris, um, I'm really thrilled. So as I sat there with way too many ideas and this overwhelming sense that I was never going to be able to communicate any of what I had going through my head, and burning in my heart, um, I decided, okay, well, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to try and make a loose outline. And I was forced, as I went through my stuff, to throw out a whole lot of stuff. So I called Chris after I had finished my loose outline, and he told me, you can absolutely not preach that message this week. And I was like, okay. Well, apparently I was stepping on his toes and my original outline would really have fit better next week. So, but rather than freaking out and crying, which is what I would have done in years past, um, I sat down with all of my notes again that I had just thrown out and I decided to relook at them. And in them, I found three little notes that had originally ended up on the floor. Um, they seemed kind of unrelated, but suddenly I found myself going down a totally different path. And before I knew it, I was swept up and lost in my new outline. So this morning's sermon isn't at all what I thought I was going to preach on. In fact, I think really I had been fighting this morning's sermon for weeks because it's just not a very fun topic. But I feel deep in my heart that it's what God is calling each of us to, both as a church and individually. So how many of you have heard the saying, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it? I actually like it a little bit better in its original form, which is those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Many of us say this often, or we at least believe it in theory. We might even be able to point to specific instances where history has painfully repeated itself with consequences that are achingly similar. In fact, when I googled times where history has repeated itself, it seemed that every single article started with the same story. Napoleon and Hitler and their invasions of Russia. They both made the same exact mistake. They started their invasion during the summer without being prepared for the harsh climate that they would face when winter arrived. So both armies lost hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Countless more civilians were murdered. And in the end, Russia still stood in its frozen fortress. There were many other stories that were notable, and some, such as the similarities in the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln and JFK, are likely more urban legend than truth. But each article pointed out one thing. Humans seem to not be able to truly recognize patterns very well. 
And even when they do recognize them in the past, we struggle to recognize when we're living one in the present. And as true as it is on a global scale, I think it's even more true in our personal lives. Has anyone ever made a New Year's resolution just to make the same exact resolution the following year and the following year? Or maybe an even better question, has anyone accepted a Lenten fast to not criticize or blame others and you're already thinking, "Mm, maybe I'll do better next year? Or maybe that's just me. Well, it's no surprise that repeating patterns and the, the cycle of history repeating itself is a deep part of the story of God's people as well. And this morning, we're going to look back at some of that story. These people who had been promised through Abraham to be blessed and to bless everyone else, who'd been promised a special place in history as God's special treasure, a people who'd been promised a land flowing with milk and honey that he would give to them. We're going to spend a little time in their history. I mean, with such a promising beginning, you'd think that surely these promised people have always had a rosy history, right? But we know that's not the way history reads. We know the story well enough to know that the Israelites promised to love and obey God. And that was a promise they obeyed for about three minutes. God gave them all the tools they needed to not only be a nation, but to be a different kind of nation. A nation that blessed everyone around them. But instead, they got caught up in the culture of the day. They followed right along with the surrounding nations. They worshipped local gods. They sacrificed what belonged to God to idols that were made of wood and stone and metal. They enslaved foreigners. They were supposed to be blessing. And worse, they forgot the widows and the orphans among them. And maybe worse of all, they surrendered to the fear of the armies that were surrounding them. Obviously, there were bright spots along the way. Times when God showed up and he did crazy miracles. There were times when strong military leaders freed the people from oppression. And especially when their kings, like David, sought God. And because of that, the entire nation walked in some of those blessings that God had promised so long ago. But ultimately, they forgot the God who had carried them out of Egypt, who walked them through the sea on dry ground to a camp at a mountain where he not only provided for their every single need, but he also sought to come and live right there among them. This God who loved them, this God whose only desire was to live and dwell among them, they forgot him. Now on this path from Adam and Eve through Abraham, Moses and David, this path that was always heading to a place of redemption and relationship, these people got lost. And that's where I want to pick up this morning. Last week, Chris talked to us about David's desire to build a temple for God. We talked about the fact that it was a good desire, but rather than being excited that David wanted to do something good for him, God rebuked him for not being big enough. God promised David that from his kingly line would come the king who would rule forever. David's almost dumbfounded response was one of gratitude that God would look upon him with such favor. But this didn't mean that David didn't have a part to play in the building of the temple that he desired. God told David, you can gather all the materials for the temple. And your successor, Solomon, he'll build it. So let's start this morning with the dedication for this temple that that David envisioned and Solomon actually built. We'll be in 2 Chronicles 7. Now when Solomon finished praying, 
A bolt of lightning out of heaven struck the whole burnt offering and sacrifices and the glory of God filled the temple. The glory was so dense that the priests couldn't get in. God so filled the temple that there was no room for the priests. When all of Israel saw the fire fall from heaven and the glory of God fill the temple, they fell on their knees, bowed their heads and worshipped, thanking God. Yes, God is good. His love never quits. Then the king and all of Israel worshipped, offering sacrifices to God. God appeared to Solomon that very night and he said, I accept your prayer. Yes, I've chosen this place as a temple for sacrifice, a house of worship. If I ever shut off the supply of rain from the skies, or I order locusts to eat the crops or send a plague on my people, and my people, my God-defined people, respond by humbling themselves, praying, seeking my presence, and turning their backs on their wicked lives, I'll be there ready for you. I'll listen from heaven, forgive their sins, and restore their land to health. From now on, I'm on alert day and night to the prayers offered at this place. Believe me, I've chosen and sanctified this temple that you have built. My name is stamped on it forever. My eyes are on it and my heart in it always. As for you, if you live in my presence as your father David lived, pure in heart and action, living the life I've set out for you, attentively obedient to my guidance and judgments, then I'll back your kingly rule over Israel. Make it a sure thing on a sure foundation. The same covenant guarantee I gave to David, your father, I'm giving it to you. Namely, you can count on always having a descendant on Israel's throne. But if you and your sons betray me, ignoring my guidance and judgments, taking up with alien gods by serving and worshiping them, then the guarantee's off. I'll wipe Israel right off the map and repudiate this temple I've just sanctified to honor my name. And Israel will be nothing but a bad joke among the peoples of the world. In this temple, splendid as it now is, will become an object of contempt. Tourists will shake their heads, saying, what happened here? What's the story behind these ruins? And then they'll be told, the people who used to live here betrayed their God. The very God who rescued their ancestors from Egypt, they took up with alien gods, worshiping and serving them. That's what's behind this God-visited devastation. Now, though I would really love to dive into all the great text there, we don't really have time to park here, other than to say that this is the glorious beginning of the temple that David dreamt of, including the promises attached to it, as well as some of the dire warnings. So with that, we're going to fast forward 500 years, and there we're going to find the people of God scattered, cast out, and apparently separated from all the promises that had defined them for so long. All those things God had just asked of Solomon and from his people, they ignored them. Instead, they fell prey yet again to the lies that Satan has been peddling since the garden, that God's people could do better than God. Israel had been driven out of the land that God had promised Abraham, the land he'd given them when they came up out of Egypt. They'd taken for granted all of his promises and they'd been unfaithful to God to the end or to their end of every covenant. Here we are in the same temple that Solomon built and he dedicated, but things look remarkably different in Ezekiel 9. The glory of the God of Israel ascended from his usual place above the cherubim angels. 
And it moved to the threshold of the temple and called to the man with the writing case who was dressed in linen. Go through the streets of Jerusalem and put a mark on the forehead of everyone who's in anguish over the outrageous obscenities being done in the city. I listened, and he went on to, dis- to address the executioners. Follow him through the city and kill. Feel sorry for no one. Show no compassion. Kill old men and women, young men and women, mothers and children. But don't lay a hand on anyone with my mark. Start at the temple. They started with the leaders in front of the temple, and he told the executioners, desecrate the temple, fill it with corpses, then go out and continue the killing. So they went out, and they struck the city. While the massacre went forward, I was left alone, and I fell on my face in prayer. Oh, oh God, my master, are you going to kill everyone left in Israel in this pouring out of your anger on Jerusalem? He said, The guilt of Israel and Judah is enormous. The land is swollen with murder. The city, bloated with injustice. They all say God has forsaken this country. He doesn't see anything that we do. Well, I do see, and I'm not feeling sorry for any of them. They're going to pay for what they've done. If we were to continue reading, we would watch as the glory of God that had rested in the temple for all of those 500 years leaves the temple vacant and empty. Ezekiel saw all of this in a vision from far away Babylon where he was captive, but he felt the weight of this judgment as though he were standing right there in the midst of the waste of the temple that was supposed to be full of all the promises. God's presence has left Israel. Are they even still the people of God, his special treasure? There's so many messages just like this one throughout the books of the prophets Warnings, pronouncements of judgment on his people in their land. And we don't have time to read all of them this morning, but there's another one in Isaiah 29 that I think we need this morning. And it says this. The master said, these people will make a big show of saying the right thing, but their hearts aren't in it. Because they act like they're worshiping me, but they don't mean it. I'm going to step in and shock them awake, astonish them, stand them on their ears. The wise ones who had it all figured out will be exposed as fools. The smart people who thought they knew everything will turn out to know nothing. Doom to you. You pretend to have the inside track. You shut God out and you work behind the scenes plotting the future as if you knew everything. Acting mysterious, never showing your hand. Downstairs over Lent, the kids' table elementary class has been going on adventures each week with the magic school bus. And the theme for this week's lesson is, are you sure we're not lost? You see, from the beginning of time, when Adam and Eve chose to believe the lie that they were not already made in the image of God, and they were subsequently separated from God, man has fallen for the same lie over and over again, that we somehow need to be more than what we were created to be. We forget that all God wants from us is a relationship. And so downstairs, as the kids have traveled through the covenants made to Abraham and Adam and Moses and David, we've been looking for real reasons for this separation brought on by Adam and then hunting even harder for the solution promised in each of the same covenants. Yet when we look at the covenants as a journey, by the time we get here to the prophets, it seems like the people of God are horribly lost. Not only have they failed to love and obey God, which is honestly not too surprising, but now his very presence 
has left their temple, and they, the people who bear his name, are scattered. They're far from God, they're far from his land, and from their homes. So what do we make of this promise to be blessed and to be a blessing? The people are a mockery among the nations that they have been called to bless. It looked as though God had simply abandoned them. But let's dig further into this story and look more deeply. I know that Chris has talked a lot about the Torah and the prophets and the fact that when the people of God went into captivity, all they really had was the Torah. They had a few scattered parchments and some oral traditions that had been passed down from person to person. But the rabbis in captivity knew they had to find a whole new way of holding on to these traditions and the culture that made them the people of God. And so they sat about the task of compiling the books of the prophets. These histories of the judges and the kings, but they also had to look at the words of the, those men that, they never, that never seemed to have anything good to say. Men like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea, and so many others. These men of God who, despite being ignored and often mistreated, had faithfully warned the people of God that they were leaving the path and getting lost. Their words promised discipline if these people continued to forget their God. They were harsh words like the ones we read moments ago. These rabbis in captivity looked again at the words of the men who had been ignored, reviled, imprisoned, mocked, and treated like crazy men. And in the words of the prophets, the rabbis found something I don't think they expected to find. In the stories of these faithful men and women whose stories were told in these ancient scrolls and histories, they found stories of goodness and faithfulness of God, carrying them, holding them, always reaching out to them. And as the rabbis read these old stories, they found in them all tangled up and wound up the words they had tried so hard to ignore. And suddenly those words began to yell at them. And like one of the, something that you can only see in hindsight, they realized that all the way back in God's promise to Solomon in Second Chronicles 7, it was there. If my God-defined people respond by humbling themselves, praying, seeking my presence, and turning their backs on their wicked lives. I'll be there, ready for you. I'll listen from heaven, forgive their sins, and restore their land to health. And there it was again in Jeremiah 29, which just skipped. (laughs) I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you and not abandon you. Plans to give you a future to hope for. When you call on me, when you come and pray to me, I'll listen. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and you want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. And then again in Isaiah 29, the words of a God who's always faithful, even when his people forget him and get lost. Before you know it, and without you having to do anything, or without you having anything to do with it, wasted Lebanon will be transformed into lush gardens and Mount Carmel restored. At that time, the deaf will hear word for word what's been written. After a lifetime in the dark, the blind will see. The castoffs of society will be laughing and dancing in God. The down and outs shouting praise to the Holy One of Israel. For there'll be no more gangs on the street. Cynical scoffers will be an extinct species. Those who never missed a chance to hurt or demean will never be heard from again. 
Gone the people who corrupted the courts. Gone the people who cheated the poor. Gone the people who victimized the innocent. It seemed that the more the rabbis searched and compiled, and no doubt owned that they hadn't been faithful to God at any point in their history, the more they found God's goodness and his faithfulness to them. He was always there. He was waiting for them, longing to give them all of his blessings. They only needed to look back at his works and his words to find his love for them. But we have to remember that the rabbis were writing all of these things down from the confines of captivity. And as they found these stories of God's past faithfulness, they also read the promises that God would not forget them. But he would lead them out of captivity and back into the land he'd promised them. And once again, they found hope. We know now that God did, in fact, lead them out of captivity in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We get to witness the people of God as they rebuild the city of David, Jerusalem, and even the temple of God. Now, the rebuilding was not without its own dramas, but God showed up again in his faithfulness, and he protected them and granted favor to his people as they turned toward him. Surely, this new, freshly chastened group of people would get it right. Surely they would listen to the words of the Torah and the newly compiled warnings of the prophets. Surely they would fulfill the if in God's promise to Moses. But we know that that wasn't the case. Once again, history repeated itself and God's people forgot God's desire to know them and be known by them. Only this time, rather than turning to idols, they worshipped rules and laws and traditions that were nothing more than just empty actions of a people who were once again hopelessly lost. In fact, next week when we walk into Jerusalem with Jesus on Palm Sunday, we'll see again that these people were just as lost as their ancestors. The bulk of them missed the one who had been sent to fulfill all that God had promised. So what does this happy-go-lucky message of the people of God getting completely lost have to do with us today? I'm glad you asked, because I think it has a lot to do with us. Because guess what? We are those same people that we read about this this morning. We've repeated all the same exact cycles. We're those people who substitute empty actions, rules, and traditions for real relationship with the God who made us, who loves us. Look around you at the people you rub shoulders with every day. Look at your kids. Look at your friends, your neighbors. Look at our society as a whole. Are there bright spots and miracles? Well, of course there are. But by and large, we are just as lost as the people of God who thought they knew everything and were therefore caught completely off guard as Babylon's armies marched in and destroyed their temple and their way of life. Believe me, we could spend a whole lot of time talking this morning about how we got here and why I feel we are really a lot like the Israelites in the Old Testament. I mean, don't get me wrong, we have Jesus. And that comes with benefits of being able to look back and see the mistakes that the Israelites made. So it's kind of easy for us to assume that we've not made the same mistakes. Surely we haven't allowed history to repeat itself. But look around you. What do you see? Is the church known as a place of refuge and healing for the masses? Are we serving like Jesus did the downtrodden and the castoffs? Are we known for being pinnacles of forgiveness and reconciliation, not only corporately, but also in the wider world and, maybe most importantly, in our own day-to-day lives? Are we speaking life and hope into the world, 
Is the grace of God the guiding force of our everyday life? Do we have people beating down our doors asking us to pray for them? And none of this speaks at all to how we're actually doing at being holy because our Father is holy. Maybe there's a few bright spots and maybe we can occasionally answer yes to some of these questions. But as a whole, the church in America seems to be less concerned with close fellowship with the God of the Bible and instead we're trying to keep up with the latest trends. We've chosen to be like the nations around us. We seek man's power over God's. And as a result, we've become a part of the system that was hopelessly lost when we jumped on board. We're no better than the Israelites were grumbling in the wilderness. And if we are no better than the Israelites, if we're simply doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past, then what even is the point of this life of following Jesus? How in the world do we break this cycle of repeating the same doomed history over and over again? Or maybe is it just a cosmic escape plan so that we can forget about all of this mess and just go to heaven? Now, Chris tells me that that sounds more like Buddhism, but I don't even understand that and don't want to think about that, so talk to him. Anyway, most of us sitting here have kids. And if we don't have kids, we've all experienced a child misbehaving. In fact, we've all been the misbehaving child. Whether it was a full-blown temper tantrum in the middle of church or a store or an all-out or an outright defiant moment of stubbornness, maybe even a sneaky attempt to get around a rule to have our own way, children all misbehave. Okay, I admit that when I made this list, I was thinking of the ways in which I misbehaved as a child, but then Chris read it and he told me that I left out all the stuff like stealing, arson, general mayhem, and destruction, drugs, etc., etc., etc. So if you grew up like Chris, those things count too, okay? So that's my disclaimer. We all disobeyed. We all see our own children do the same things. Or we watch as someone someone else's child repeats our own behaviors. Some of us can remember being the child who screamed and slammed doors. Some of us ran and hid. Some of us were the child that just blatantly disobeyed. Some of us apparently, like, oh, we won't talk about that, lit things on fire. Um, In fact... I believe if we look close, we can probably all still find ourselves somewhere in the behaviors of children. But even as disobedient children, we mostly had parents whose desire for us was that we would grow up and be whole and healthy adults who benefit society. And yet we all step into adulthood bearing the consequences that come from our disobedience. The disobedience that we came into the world so good at and have spent every single day since practicing to get even better. We constantly struggle with the sins and the shortcomings in our own lives, many of which were passed down to us from people who got them, from people who can't remember ever not having them. And if we're honest, we all find ourselves in the passage Chris read us a few weeks ago in Romans 7.20. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. We're all sinners. We're all broken. And we've all followed and repeated the same old sins that have been around since Adam and Eve chose to take matters into their own hands. But are we doomed to stay here, stuck repeating the same past sins of the people who came before us? Does history have to repeat itself? Let's look back at some of the scriptures that we read earlier. 
If my people, my God-defined people, respond by humbling themselves, praying, seeking my presence, and turning their backs on their wicked lives, I'll be there, ready for you. I'll listen from heaven, forgive their sins, and restore their land to health. And what about this one? I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. When you call on me, when you come and pray to me, I'll listen. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and you want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. When the rabbis sat in captivity and they compiled the words of the prophets, they faced the pain of their failure. But even more, they found a future. They found hope that one day God would fulfill all the promises he's been giving all of us since the beginning of time. It doesn't matter how bad we think we've messed up. And believe me, we've messed up. We're absolutely still following and repeating the same old lies that Satan's been selling since the beginning of time. But God not only still loves us, the same God who took Abraham on adventures, the same God who walked with Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt and across the Red Sea to a mountain where he came and dwelt among them, despite their constant rebellion, the same God who promised David an heir that would rule for all of time, that same God is faithful. And he has been faithful every single day from the beginning of time until this very day. He doesn't fail. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in other words, history does repeat itself. And it turns out that's really a good thing. God was faithful to a liar like Abraham, a murderer like Moses, and an adulterer like David. And history repeats itself because God is also faithful to you and to me. So what's our part in all of this? God clearly did all the work for us. We repeatedly fail, but he's repeatedly faithful. So what is there for us to do? Well, I think we find our part in those beautiful words of the prophets. Humble yourselves. Call on me. There it is. Look at those words. Soak them in. To me, they sound an awful lot like another word. Repent. We like to throw this word around in church, but I fear maybe that we've forgotten what it really means. So how do we respond to this? Well, open table... I think the way we, re- we stop repeating the same things over and over, the way we respond to this, the way we change our society as a whole, the way we change our country, our state, our cities, our workplaces, schools, families, marriages, and even our own hearts, the way we respond is that we turn to him. We turn to God, the one who can make history, his story, His story of faithfulness and love and grace. We let that repeat itself over and over and over again in our lives. We start by turning our own hearts to God so that he can change us. He does it all. He gives us the desire, the will, and the power. He changes us. And as he changes us, we desire for others to experience that same change. And it becomes like a tidal wave or a storm surge. Just like the water that's sucked out to sea after an earthquake or during a hurricane. It gathers more and more water. And the effects as it come back ashore 
can seem hugely devastating. It becomes these massive waves of water crashing into land and dumping ashore tons of debris and trash. And those waves, they pull up, they pull up houses and trees and they destroy people. They destroy everything in their paths, leaving behind huge swaths of destruction. Sometimes repentance feels like that. And yet when we turn to God, when we face who we are, and it seems like the storm of God's holiness only brings destruction and condemnation, that's never the end of the story. From that destruction comes new life and growth that can never have existed before the storm. I think that's maybe why I originally wanted to preach next week's sermon. I wanted to skip the stormy message of the prophets that calls us to repentance. I wanted to skip ahead to the new life that comes with the, with the resurrection, with the arrival of Jesus. But before that arrival, we have to find the faithfulness of God even when we're hopelessly lost. You see, about a year ago, I awoke in the middle of the night from a dream and my heart was racing. I fell back into a fitful sleep only to find myself back in the same exact place. I spent the rest of the night waking and sleeping, but every time I fell asleep, I was immediately in the same spot of the same, of the same dream. And I was unable to escape from this moment that seemed to make no sense at all. In the morning, I told Chris about my dream. Because I don't have many dreams that I remember, but when I do remember them, they always seem bizarre. But I've also learned over the years that God uses dreams in my life to speak things that I need to hear. And they're oftentimes things that I don't think I'm ready to hear. So I tell Chris about my dreams, and he can usually tell me what they mean. Don't all go to him to have him interpret your dreams, please. (laughs) That's mine. (laughs) But this time, his response to me was to ask me what I thought it meant. I had no idea, and I was a little bit frustrated at his response, because I was pretty sure he knew exactly what it meant. He suggested instead that I talk with the counselor I'd been meeting with and ask her what she thought. So I happened to have an appointment with her that afternoon, and her response to me was the same as Chris's. What do you think it means? When I informed her that I had no idea what it meant, she told me, go home and ask God. The way she said it, I knew that she knew exactly what the dream meant too. And so now I was a little more than frustrated. But I went home and I prayed. And as I prayed, I started to cry. And I cried and I cried and I cried. In fact, since having that dream, I've cried more than I've probably cried since I was a baby. I don't like crying. Chris is a crybaby in our family. So this is a big thing. But God has used that dream in my life to begin to dig out some patterns that desperately needed to end. God used that dream to say to me, Esther, you need to go back. You need to honestly look at these things that have happened in your life. And you need to find me there in all my faithfulness and my love for you. I needed to go through this process of humbling myself, of calling on him, and in some cases, repenting. But guess what? I've found him in every single corner. I've found and continue to find myself hidden in his faithfulness, because history repeats itself. He's faithful yesterday, today, and forever. We too often have made repentance a one-time event in our lives. Sure, we recognize that we're sinners. We repent, we pray a prayer, and Jesus saves us. 
That's it, right? No, that's wrong. Paul told us in Romans 7 that he wanted to do all the right things, but he just couldn't. We're no different. When we keep reading Paul, we get to watch as he unpacks for us this process of humbling ourselves, calling on God, and embracing the idea that repentance is not only ongoing, but it's the life-giving grace that we build our relationship with God upon. God's still the same God that he was in the garden. He's still the same God he was at Mount Sinai. He's desperately desiring to walk with us, to speak with us, to have a relationship with us. And history repeats itself. God wants a relationship with you. All you have to do is turn to him. Follow the example of the rabbis in captivity. Look back. Allow him to lead you to the places in your life where you failed. But his love and faithfulness shined. You don't have to go back to the past. Try yesterday or even this morning. I promise, as you see God's response to your repentance, you will be so full of gratitude and awe, just like David was. If we're still breathing, each breath becomes an invitation from him to turn to him and allow him to change us and change the world around us. As we repent from our part in this ongoing cycle of sin and brokenness, we find him constantly repeating his love and faithfulness over and over and over again. Chris has been unpacking the covenants of the Old Testament all through Lent. And and the message I think we need more than any other is this. God is faithful. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to you. God has always been at work to save his people. And no matter how wrong we get it, history, his story repeats itself. So turn to him this morning and he will still, after all this time, be faithful to receive you and to save you.